Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com What's up, everybody? Cannabis insurance. Cannabis insurance is exceedingly important, especially for the lawful operators, the ones that actually have to comply with the regulations, unlike the legacy market, which is slowly dying, but still about two-thirds of the cannabis market. And of course, if you're watching this, it's about cannabis licenses, which means that you probably need to be 21. That's one of the reasons why we had that bumper. Thanks for joining us for a cannabis insurance-based episode of Cannabis Legalization News. What's up, everybody? Thanks for joining us. Me, cannabis industry lawyer, Tom Howard. Mickey 420 joining us uh, on remote. And hey. and also we have a cannabis insurance specialist, Doug Banfeld from Nine Point Strategies. Doug, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Thank you guys for having me on. Doug, what does a broker do, a cannabis insurance broker? Well, Mickey, in general, it's just like being a broker for any other line of business, right? Uh, that was one of my earliest slides when I started in this industry and was a speaker at one of the conventions and I, and I said it's just like any other form of business I mean so many people that are applicants and are seeking licenses get licenses come from a general business background anyway so they understand they need general liability property if they want it is just often wise product liability auto insurance work comp maybe a bond so it's a it's a specialized niche for sure but it is just uh, like any well except for all the wrinkles related to that particular niche uh, it's like any other business in terms of the insurance that you should have. Some jurisdictions mandate it. For example, if you're looking to apply in New Jersey, uh, you should do it as a conditional. And ideally, you should probably get the best priority you can. So like a priority one social equity conditional applicant. And uh, they require a one page exhibit in their conditional application for proof of adequate insurance. So that's what we're going to be talking about. What is adequate insurance for a cultivation or for a dispensary? They're, they're different risks, right, Doug? Uh, they are because of the nature of their operations. Sure, if you're a retailer, just like walking in and out of a Main Street shoe store, right? Slip and fall is a common kind of a, a, a loss. And so if you're a retailer, that's something you have to be concerned about. If you're a cultivation, fire might be more of a risk. Or if you're a manufacturer with extraction operations, uh, you can have an explosion, of course. So those kinds of risks, yeah. general liability covers those things. 
And uh, if you're a manufacturer, and actually here's an important point on products liability. A lot of folks don't understand products liability doesn't mean you're insuring your product. What that means is you're insuring against a lawsuit and being named in a suit. And a very key thing to know and uh, with products liability is everyone in the chain of distribution is considered liable. So if you're a retailer, uh, you may say, well, it's not my product. I'm selling someone else's product. That's true. But you still have a duty, for example, to make sure the, the package goes out the door, the butt tender sells it, packages it, goes out the door, and that packaging was uncompromised. Uh, edibles may have an expiration date. So uh, if you're a manufacturer, certainly somewhere in, in along the lines of the manufacturing of the product or the growing, you may have a problem uh, that could draw you into a suit. Uh, even if you contract, for example, if you're a grower and you contract the, the making of uh, the pre-rolls, uh, that, that individual, that party that made those pre-rolls for you will be named in the suit as well. So this is because uh, we're a nature, or rather we're a, a nation of laws uh, and a nation of corporations, right? So, oh, yeah. it's hard, so it's hard for you or I maybe if we're injured by Ford Motor Company with a Pinto, for example, back in the day of many years ago. but. Uh, that manufacturer is liable. How do you get such a large entity to the table uh, when you have when you've been injured? You know, you have a complaint as a potential plaintiff, and so a personal injury lawyer will sit down with you and they'll say, "Where did you get it?" Okay, so number one, the retailer is pulled in, uh, and then they'll work their way back to find everybody who touched it, including a test lab. And so test labs are a little different; they have errors and omissions. Uh, yeah. coverage and that's yeah. a, an exposure for their professional product but i love that you know a big big shout out and thumbs up and likes and subscribes to figuring out where the liability is and who has the insurance contract because what does that mean that's the monies and that's one of the reasons why the the attorney has like trained himself on it just immediately it's like this poor person is injured by this large entity okay uh, let's collapse that chain now and be like, there's an insurance contract, there's an insurance contract, there's an insurance contract. And that allows you to go after because lawsuits, when I have to tell people about how expensive they are or how long they take, um, and they're just humans, I feel bad for them because, you know, they don't have these large pots of insurance money that are out there that most businesses are mandated to have. And so with uh, cannabis industry insurance, it appears to be no different. One of the, the viewers said, hey, robbery insurance. So this would be more on the retail end. And Miggy was sharing, uh, it's just, it's regular news out of Washington State. Yeah. Hot shops being robbed. And so what type of products can a dispensary owner uh, purchase to insure against robbery risk, Doug? Right. So general liability a lot of times is packaged with property. So if you have a, a carrier approved safe, not just any safe that you know, state of Connecticut kind of muddied the waters when they had uh, their own approval at the state level for safes that or vaults, actually, it was. And, and that was not the same necessarily as what the carrier was looking for in an approved safe or vault. So what was the carrier looking for? Because this approved safer vault uh, question comes up uh, regularly with uh, our last guest. He was a builder. And so you have to look at the jurisdiction in the where you're building it for the regulations on how they will characterize a safer vault. So what do you mean by that? Right. So an approved. Well, let's just start with safe. It's a small uh, it's limited, right, because you can only put so much in a safe. But cash, certainly uh, if you're a manufacturer, you might put oils, uh, some edibles in that sort of a container, so to speak. Uh, 800 pound minimum is is good a one hour fire rated is required uh, bolted to the floor 
So you need to meet those three criteria to have an approved vault, so to, or safe, so to speak, uh, under the carrier's rules. And, and I'm talking about one of the leading carriers that we do a lot of business with, but, but typically the rest of the industry follows this other. So these rules will pretty much hold true across the use of different carriers. Uh, as far as vaults go, you can have a bank vault, which almost no one does, unless you're so lucky as to locate your retail store in a former uh, credit union or, or bank. And, and sometimes I have some clients that are in such facilities. That's the ideal. That's perfect, of course. Uh, but also anything else would include a uh, shipping container, a Connex container. If it's 2,000 pounds bolted to the floor, if it's over 2,000 pounds, it does not need to be bolted to the floor. In either case, it does need to have a camera trained on the front door from the inside of the unit and from the outside. And that would then qualify that shipping container, that cargo container as a vault. Uh, other options, custom vaults, uh, those are subject to carrier approval. I have a client that has a, a vault that is said to uh, be able to repel bullets. It's a ballistically approved vault. Okay, that may be a little over the top, but they've used it and we got it approved. Uh, and Watch then the other way, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Doug, right. is it, it, so, but is there like the, the a robbery insurance though? Is there a because uh, like that's more of like if a, if a fire happens, right? Because there's only so much a vault can protect. But like at gunpoint, when these guys are going through the robberies, is there anything like that for them? Like a, like a yes. jewelry store? Well, yes, actually, Maggie. So where I was going with that was th these are the vault and the safe pertain to your product during non-business hours. During business hours, to your point, if it's a strong arm robbery in the middle of the day, if you have some property coverage, and first you're gonna to have to have that approved safer vault in place, that coverage. But if you have a strong arm robbery, you're gonna have some percentage of your floor, uh, your product on the floor. 10% is good, 15%, more than that, I wouldn't advise it. Uh, we're pretty far removed now from the days of the California deli style with the jars on counters, and you could move up and down the, the, the aisle and look at that. Uh, so. No, so if you have product coverage for your inventory, stock and inventory as we call it, then you could get covered for that if it were lost in a strong arm robbery. And then the burglary is what I was getting at with those uh, other types of, of, of non-business hour security measures. So the thing to keep in mind for a retailer is if you should remove, ideally you would remove most or all your product from the storefront overnight. I know that's not practical. And so uh, the carrier will, they will, they will, they will pay out on something that has been properly secured. So only if it's properly secured will they pay. An important point. I imagine what about crop insurance? Well, I was going to ask, like, you know, Chad is asking about crop insurance because uh, that's the different end. We aren't on the retail end. Now we're on the cultivation side. Uh, crop insurance works uh, for, you know, USDA insured ag loans. And there's crop insurance for number two yellow corn. Or whatever number of soybeans they continue, they, uh, they grow a lot of here in these uh, prairie states that I live in. Uh, are, are there options for crop insurance? Absolutely. So there's a formula for for determining the value. Uh, when we talk to growers, they'll tell us how many pounds they pull down per light, which is great, but that's not the that's not the metric we use. Uh, so, but there is there's we can value seeds. Almost no one does that, but you could clones. Wow. Uh, and those are uh, those are ten dollars a clone, twenty dollars a clone. I'm sorry, twenty dollars a clone. Uh, and and I'm going to loop back to that in a moment, right? Uh, but uh, for plants and veg and plants and flower and finished stock, uh, that's there's coverage available for that. Absolutely. 
Cool. And so wow. looping, looping back and looping back for a moment on the clones. So if you have mothers, there's really no, I don't know of a carrier yet that has a, a way to formulate a value for mothers. So we'll we'll work out with the carrier and go for stated value on that. So you place a value, the grower places a value on their genetics, and, and we'll talk about that. See if we can come to a, an agreeable uh, figure for them to ensure. Does that include besides like uh, a robbery or, or farm or a, a, like a fire? But does that all include like a, the accidental stuff like uh, spider mites or? You know, like a bad crop. Does it cover that kind of stuff too? Right, right. So, Miggy, thanks for asking that. Uh, there's no coverage for being a bad farmer, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and we know neg now, negligence insurance. Well, like, you know, I don't drive very hard. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully, you get some mold and you can remediate it. Right. I mean, that's the best play yeah. there. We have some but, interesting questions. Well, uh, average monthly insurance rates for cultivation and dispensary. I think. That could be a because uh, what's the average monthly ins you know uh, costs for a cannabis license? There's thousands of cannabis licenses out there, uh, so I assume that has to be a fairly uh, fact specific and intensive question about what is your going to be your average cost if you're a cultivator, if you're an extractor, or if you're a dispensary, because it's probably going to be based on volume or or what what influences cost, Doug. Uh, well, so you're right, Thomas. It's uh, very, very operation specific. And so uh, the other thing on that is, you know, where you are when you start and and how you start your business. So, uh, for example, if it's if it's somebody uh, doing it on a shoestring, you know, pay as you go, uh, mom and pop, if you will. Uh, I recommend that they get pretty extensive coverage if they're leveraged. So if they've been borrowing, if they're borrowed from friends and family tapped out some of their own resources. And for them, even a relatively small loss might be a big loss, right? Because they're they're leveraged. Yeah. Now, if you're well capitalized, then it's different. And you might choose to self-insure for a number, for property, typically. Uh, and because of the rules, you know, you have to have some coverage in place for just about everything, uh, the, the, right? The real and business personal property uh, and the liability and products liability and work comp, of course. So uh, what I always tell folks, and I, this is after about six months of, of writing policies uh, when I was new at this 10 years ago, 11 years ago now, uh, I asked the carrier for some sort of way to ballpark premiums. Everybody asks, it's a fair question. And they wouldn't give me an answer. It's kind of like asking you know, about a claim. And there are too many hypotheticals there, to your point, Thomas. Uh, but so what I saw though over time was uh, pretty consistently, and I started in Arizona, we were writing brand new businesses. So everybody was a startup and there were not a lot of parties that were very well capitalized at that point. It was much earlier in the industry, of course. Um, so, but I saw 1% of projected gross revenues. So that's a main rating metric for liability, product liability, as well as general liability. Is, you know, the more, the, the more, uh, the bigger volume of business you're doing, the more exposure there is, right? The more activity in that business. Yeah. So, so with that, uh, we always advise folks to give us your sure to hit number. I don't want to rate you on pie in the sky if you're going to be paying the premium for that. So, or even your blue sky. Uh, just give me your sure to hit low number because we want it to be within the realm of the reasonable. And at the end of the policy term, there'll be a, an audit. And they will find out if maybe the carrier, you know, say you said you were going to do 750K first year and you do 1.2 million. Well, so the carrier had your back during that time and they will come back for some additional premium from you. But that's fair, I think, because like I said, they had your back. And in this case, we've managed to defer that payment. 
and a deferred payment is a preferred payment, right? So by then you've seen the revenues, you've seen how that first year is so important that first year, how that shakes out. And the second year, maybe we can come a little closer on that, on that projection, but you don't want to over project because then you won't get anything back. It doesn't work that way. So this is why we definitely want to make sure we're conservative in, in how we rate it. So use 1% for most operations. That'll get you general liability, product liability, and some property. When I say some property, again, it's it's dependent on your type of operation. If you have a retail store, unless you're doing an incredible build out and creating another Apple type store or something like that, which some folks do and they're beautiful, you may have a big investment in property, tenant improvements, that sort of thing then. But if not, uh, then then that 1% is gonna be more than enough uh, as a budgeting line item. Use 1%, it, you'll be safe with that. You'll thank us when you get uh, when you get the premium, it'll be less than that, almost certainly. The, the only real exception is for real property, business, personal property intensive businesses like a grow or manufacturing operation where you might have a big investment in property, right? You're insuring all your equipment, which we can do. Uh, and so that might skew it a little higher, but really there is no one size fits all answer. We just have to quote it and see where it lands. It's kind of per crop then, huh? I'm sorry, Mickey. It was kind of per crop, like each each rate, each uh, quote that you give, it's kind of per uh, crop per growth, right? So if they uh, had a hundred plants one year, uh, and then the following year they overestimate or underestimate, you can kind of work with them, can you? Uh, yeah, well, we we will make it uh, make it right the second time around for sure. You know, on the crop itself, uh, we're ensuring the number of plants that you have. So that's that shouldn't be too much of a guess. If you want it, so here's an important thing to know about crop insurance. That settles out at wholesale, right? So our formula is it derives a value for the plants in their various stages of growth, and and that that formula. And if you have a loss, say it's a fire, uh, you'll it'll settle out at wholesale. If you also want coverage for your lost profit. Right, it's your retail value. Uh, well, and you're wholesaling to somebody else, but with your markup, if you want you want it uh, to be insured for that that profit, then we have to have loss of income insurance, which is a, a type of property insurance, and we have to have equipment breakdown. So you have to have those three elements. You have the crop insurance, loss of equipment, or I'm sorry, loss of income and equipment breakdown, and those three things then will settle out. You'll get wholesale plus you'll get your lost profit. So you can be fully insured for a crop, in other words. Well, it's fantastic. Well, well it, it, it costs, but then like, why wouldn't you spend 1% of your revenue to protect against some type of catastrophic crap that might happen? You know, it just, it, it's, it's insurance because that's what it is, you know? Right. Doug, do you do both hemp and cannabis? I'm sorry, Miggy. Do you do, do, do you do both hemp and cannabis? We can do hemp. I don't write a lot of it. You know, it's a, it's kind of gone in fits and starts in some states. Ding, ding, so, ding, ding. So it's, yeah, it's, it's been tough to, to track. And, and we are, I mean, we can, we can write it. We can, we can write, we can write hemp. Uh, but related to hemp, uh, and an interesting one, and I should throw this out on this show, is Delta 8. Oh, Delta oh, 8 yeah. policy. Yeah. So, you know, it's a product you can get in a convenience store, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe in yeah. some states. Uh, some states about a lot. Yeah. Some states are regulating it, and some states are just hands off. So that makes it challenging. I mean, we approach it on an individual basis, of course. But if you're a carrier, you have to take a, you have to make a policy decision, right? Are you going to be okay with this anywhere that they're selling it? 
and we have one carrier, for example, that is not. If it's, they just they just say in your state it's outlawed and we're well, not going to write it. But we've got people selling it. I've seen some. But, so this is a, this is part of the discussion we have with clients. You know, do you have Delta A products because this carrier won't won't go near it. We have another one who will, and that's you know. But we need to know. But besides the Delta A, what if the crop tests hot? Is there something? To, can you insure against that? Oh, uh, yeah. We, well, I suppose. <laughs> it's a qualified answer because that is so situational dependent. Yeah. State dependent. Yeah, that's a tough one. What uh, about this question we have on uh, one of the viewers is asking about something about uh, an area that probably will need insurance. I'm not sure what type uh, in the future because, you know, now that COVID is completely gone, we all hope and pray uh, that uh, the consumption lounges, which two years ago seemed to be get, gearing up to get into high gear. And then everything shut down and I started growing my hair out. So what are the concerns about having on-site consumptions at festivals or consumption lounges? Are yeah. there dram shop equivalents for these types of venues, you know, or tests for intoxication? I'm like, well, the dram shop really only applies to liquor. But, you know, Doug, what do you think about or have you seen any uh, insurance required for events like Hemp Fest, for example, in Seattle? Oh, sure. Well, that's the thing. All events require. If you're a venue... If you're a promoter, you, you want it. You should have it. And if you're a venue, you require it, right? Uh, and so that's a very good question because it's a rapidly evolving point right now with rec laws in different states. So, you know, Michigan, uh, Illinois, uh, anywhere that they've recently made rec available, Arizona certainly. Uh, I've got an event where folks are talking about having basically a, a circus along with consumption and uh, alcohol consumption. That's a wow. big, hairy deal. I mean, that's a hard thing to, to, to cover right now. Um, so as far as intoxication goes, there is no standard for intoxication, cannabis intoxication, right? Uh, it's a roadside it's a roadside coordination test. What else, hmm. right, what else could it be at this point? So any policy you get is gonna have an impairment exclusion. Just know hmm. that right off the bat. So that makes well, sense. Well, on the program, at 20 past the hour, we say, hey, it's uh, it's 420 somewhere. So uh, we'll be right back after this short break brought to you by Collateral. <laughs> Yay. That's right. You can find us at CannabisIndustryLawyer.com. And here we are, you know, Cannabis Industry Lawyer, Niggy. And Doug from Nine Point, Nine Point uh, Insurance Solutions. What's the Nine Point Strategies? Nine Point Strategies, yes, sir. Discussing everything about cannabis industry insurance. And uh, before the break, I think we were getting into novel areas, uh, you know, uh, uh, event spaces. Uh, what other types of new types or, or new areas of the cannabis plant and its business are you seeing insurance applications, Doug? Well, uh, the hospitality industry is going to, I think, be a leader in this, right? Because in a larger sense, I'm looking at every business that accommodates alcohol users. What if it's a bowling alley? I mean, just any business, which is so many businesses, right? That you can walk in and have a drink, they have a bar, whatever it is. Um, so why would they not cater to cannabis users? Uh, other than there, there's some considerations. It's smoking. That's the one thing, right? Because so many states now are smoke free. Um, although in New York City, you can walk down the street with a joint, which is actually kind of nice. Uh, that's the real freedom, right? Right there. Uh, but 
I think the hospitality space is going to be a leader in this because Airbnbs, uh, boutique hotels, there's a lot of folks who are interested in being able to go and have a nice hospitality experience and bring their cannabis and use it. And and so those those facilities may have lounges as well. Lounges right now uh, are, are insurable. They were for a little while and then they weren't for a bit of time when the one carrier that was offering that pulled out. Uh, now there's another carrier and they look to be set to stay in the space. So we got, you are know, these carriers uh, American businesses, Canadian businesses? Because like I question. could see a Canadian business being like, well, it's completely lawful here. We're going to honor the contracts. We don't have any of these illegality. Uh, and then so there's a void and avoidable contract issue that may arise for insurance contracts or even this YouTube channel. It's one of the reasons why we don't have 50,000 subscribers is because they're like, oh, yeah, but this channel is furthering yes. a, 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 an organized federal conspiracy to, you know, violate this particular statute that they haven't changed since 1970 for no good reason. Right. Um, so, you know, uh, there, there's that aspect of it. Hey, uh, Tom, I guess I'm going to have to leave. I've been mm -hmm. standing in 32 degree weather this whole time. Oh. So my uh, everything's frozen. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, Miggy, but, uh, I wanted you to thank, you know, thanks for dropping in. It's Miggy's girl's. The uh, birthday, let, and, yeah. and he drops in to talk cannabis insurance. Can you believe that? She, she let me out for an hour, and uh, we're on our yeah, we're, we're and it's a fiftieth too. So I got to really be a uh, oh okay. yeah, got to yeah yeah. Well, so hey, everybody, everybody, give us a lot of thumbs up, like, subscribes for Biggie's wife's big birthday, and he's gonna go party. All right, guys, take care, Biggie. Thanks, take care. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, man. All right. Uh, so, Doug, what so, haven't so, we covered? About well, sorry, Thomas. So, so we, I just want to hit on the events just again for a moment yeah. and, and those uses. So, I mean, literally, you know, there's the leading edge. And in some of these cases where now we're seeing mainstream businesses want to accommodate cannabis users, they just need to understand that they're at the bleeding edge. I mean, it is it is a, a kind of a fraught area. It's not an easy placement, as we call it, in finding carriers. These are American carriers. They're U.S. carriers. They're A-rated carriers. Uh, most of them have some experience now in the space. Uh, now and again, we hear somebody new entering, but usually it's it's a new uh, it's a new wholesaler or general agency, as we call them, who uh, are are they're the they're the yeah they're the middleman to so see we're a retailer. I'm a retailer. I go to the wholesaler, and they go to all the markets, as they say, with my submission. They'll take it out to all their carriers, and it, this is program insurance, and that's the other thing to understand. Uh, there's nobody able to rate this up for you with a desktop rater. So there's a, a timeline involved with collecting the data, submitting the app, getting it through underwriting, getting it back, presenting the quote, and then binding. So it's a process. I just I, I want to throw that out there so we can avoid uh, as much last minute kind of activity as possible. Nice to have well, a little bit of time. It's to work important. With. And then the like they really everybody needs to kind of understand that it is you are out there. I mean, you're out there a little bit ahead of the laws. And and then uh, that is impacting the industry on a day to day basis so much. And it, um, one of the interesting things is when you see a new state legalize and then you see the demand uh, very often fueled by greed, uh, the demand to get into the industry. And then you realize when you step back that it's not that big, you know, like Illinois, there was maybe a Illinois, 12 million people, uh, 12, almost 13. And so like uh only about a thousand people wanted those licenses for the dispensaries. A thousand uh, LLC entities. That's it. 
Uh, and then how many wanted the cultivation? Only about 430. That's not that big. But then when you're in the industry, it's your life. And so you just kind of assume like, you know, if I was an oncologist, maybe I would just figure everybody has cancer. But, uh, you know, I'm in right. cannabis, so I just kind of figure everybody's in cannabis. But nobody knows in my uh, neighborhood that's cute and nice that the, what does that guy do? Oh, he has a YouTube channel and like deals weed all over the country. You know, it's it's just so ridiculous. But uh, yeah. And so when do you think or how long have you guys been in the industry? Let's 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 start at that one. Well, thanks. That's a good question. In 2010, I was a new agent. I uh, had been uh, working for an elected official for 10 years prior, and I ended up on the wrong team, which happens in politics. Not a problem. Uh, but it was also the, the Great Recession was going on, so that made it challenging to find similar work. Uh, so so I said, you know, I, I like small business owners. I've, I worked for a lot of them as a younger guy, and I really respect and admire what they do, you know, how they, they get up every day thinking about what they're going to do, and they keep it flying, and they build it. Uh, so... I found a small brokerage in Scottsdale. I'm in Arizona, Phoenix. Found a small brokerage in Scottsdale. They said, you can have a cube, a computer. We'll give you all the support you need, no salary. Uh, and I said, well, okay. <laughs> well, that's uh, a trade-off. I mean, like, that's one of the deals that I like to do. Uh, and I'm like, here's our marketing platform. Any lawyer would frickin' kill for this. There Not you paying anything. Right. And then I'm taking a cut off the top. <laughs> yeah. No, but so, that's good. That's good. well, and, and so well, and part of that too, Thomas, is that we um, in Arizona we had passed the medical marijuana law in 1996. I remember California. We yeah. uh, we've we've done uh, we've done uh, bits on that on our channel regarding, okay. and then so because we talk about the states from everywhere, and so like what happened in South Dakota and kind of to a certain extent in Mississippi, the, we would we would always talk about what happened in Arizona in the late 90s, and then that yeah. how they waited until 2010. And so it's like when you see politics come out and then say, and then now they're kind of doing it in Oklahoma, where it's like everybody's confused by what they're yeah. voting for. Absolutely. Bullshit. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, the people know what it is and they, they say they want it. In our case, our legislature denied us. Uh, so in 98, we passed the Arizona Voter Protection Act, which really uh, ties the hands of the legislature if it's something approved by the voters. But it took us until 2010 to approve it. It passed by a tenth of 1%, 4,000 votes out of 4 million cast. I mean, wow. that was that was a particular moment in time when, when a lot of conservatives got into office and that may have had some effect at suppressing, you know, some of our turnout uh, on the pro side. But um, but with that, uh, I, so I went to I went to my agency fellows, the four partners and said, you know, what do you think of this niche? And they said, we don't have any moral objection. Is it good business? So I had to look into it a bit. And the program I found, though, and the relationship we started with was, was with the uh, the program that came to market in 2000. Uh, it was the first cannabis program available. And it's it's the most refined now, as you can imagine, 20 some odd years later. Uh, and it's still pretty much the industry leader in, in almost every regard. So it's, it's a very evolved product. But uh, the, talking about the politics, so our governor sued in federal court. We had a lot of bad faith stuff going on, uh, trying to undercut us again. Uh, I say us in the reform movement. Uh, and so, uh, eventually, our governor sued in federal court, which put a two-year delay on implementation of the program. So, right, just because it takes that long to get heard in federal court, right? No, well, so, I mean, like, I'll be doing a piece here uh, on next Wednesday's news. Our, our moments in weed history is going to kind of juxtapose the history of uh, Oklahoma and Illinois, because Oklahoma passed medical basically one year, eleven months essentially to the day 
before Illinois legalized it. And now you come to, to today and you see all these licenses in Oklahoma and nothing going on in Illinois. Nothing. Uh, yeah, well, Illinois has got a, a, let's call it a steady program. <laughs> and, and Oklahoma's blown up because, it, I mean, it, it seemed to me like kind of a cash grab. I mean, it's okay to, to have raw, unfettered capitalism to a point, but, uh, you know, it, it, it kind of reminded me of Denver, right? Uh, in the early 2010s, 12. Uh, yeah. just that, 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 and this goes to our local conversation we were talking about earlier. Uh, neighborhoods felt inundated. Some neighborhoods, those where they would have a handful of dispensaries, a half a dozen dispensaries, you know, and it's just too great of a concentration of one use. And so that's not being a good neighbor. And, and so in that case, Colorado, more more explicitly, Denver probably failed to uh, put the, the code in, in, in place, right, to have the have the structure in place to, for permitting those businesses. Right. Um, and, by, and by the opposite token, uh, Oklahoma's just said, come one, come all. Unfortunately, now they figured out that they've become a major exporter of black market cannabis. Duh. Uh, because and, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Duh. And, and so, like, but now they're starting to crack down, and they have regs right. that say you have to be seed to sale, uh, and so inventory control systems are finally coming to Oklahoma. Very good. But uh, whew, I can't believe that that they just let it out of the bag, and boom, did it? It, it blew up. Uh, and it looks like New Mexico's kind of on that track right now, I'd say. Yeah, that remains to be seen on that one. It's a small state uh, population-wise, like Oklahoma, I suppose. Uh, well, two to four million. So Oklahoma's two, uh, New Mexico's. But if that uh, gray market, if the guy, the, the distribution owner who just keeps no records because, whoops, it's Wednesday. Right, uh, right. You know, if that guy is now moving his, his operations to New Mexico, it, great but then they have the water right issue and so they don't have water rights in oklahoma because they have rain and stuff you know oh unlike unlike uh, some of the western states right 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 so but that local level is so important you know i remember when we started in arizona i would uh go and speak on behalf of an applicant uh and sometimes you know you'd have 40 people with their torches and uh, pitchforks would show up and that would be the anti folks of course right well they and a lot of it's stigma i mean that was years ago and, All of it and, and we've evolved a lot since yeah. then a lot of yeah. people know better now but even so there's a lot more good weed in the streets too well there and is so like there's weed. a lot more people that are like oh stigma's easy to keep when you can't have any new information come in but right. then you have just it i remember buying weed 20 years ago when i was in college and it was hard to find good weed it was easy to find weed it was hard to find good weed that had a name sure. Now right. all right. weed's good and has names, and so like right. the, the the addition the, the the availability of quality supply is substantially better than it was twenty years ago. So it's just harder, and then also the internet and availability to information. It's just harder to maintain a stigma uh, these days, you know. It is, uh, although you know people that are concerned about children and you know, getting it and all of that and this uh, this line of thinking that you know one more intoxicant we already have enough bad intoxicants why add one more well that denies the fact that it's happening anyway so right. you know let's regulate it but what i found and in, in, in a few conversations in particular with those folks that you just cannot reason with they have had some significant emotional trauma related to this such as a loss of a child to an overdose 
or or some other you know terrible outcome, and and right. you just can't get past that mindset with those folks. But for so many others, they are persuadable, right? They have some at least secondhand knowledge of cannabis, cannabis use. Uh, but still, when you go as an applicant, when you go stand before your city council, uh, if you have a grow, you're going to hear about you know the odor issue, right? Um, if you have a if you're a retailer, well, you know. Folks don't want their 13-year-old son walking past a, a, a dealer, so to speak, a dispensary on their way to school. Um, but what we see in all cases, really, is when communities become familiar with a cannabis operation, especially helpful, of course, if the owner and, and the employees reach out and become parts of the community, really take uh, participation within the community uh, seriously, then then the stigma goes away, and they just at the end of the day they're just another type of business. They are, and very often they are a, a heavily taxed business, which very often and like I have drafted numerous winning uh, neighborhood or community policy or like plans for engagement that is required in a lot of the applications in the regulated states. Uh, not the Oklahomas, but it's coming to Oklahoma, I bet, if the regulations are starting to show up there. Uh, even in uh, New Mexico, you need that type of policy, your social equity and economic uh, policy of how are you going to help redevelop the community that you're operating in. Um, and with that, I mean, like they don't, if you're going to go open a pizzeria, they aren't going to be like, and where is your community development operational plan? Like, no, they're going to be like, oh, are you going to have deep dish? You know, that's it. The layer of regulations that you have to have in this industry are pretty intense. They are. Uh, I have a client who uh, used to have an aeronautics business, and he said it was as regulated as that. Aeronautics. That is the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, <laughs> regulating you like you can't believe. And so I have... For safety, okay. For yeah. safety, for safety, of course, of course, for safety. But then, like you know, when I'm smoking a joint, I'm not going 600 miles an hour, five miles in the air. You know, I'm not, I'm not on right. a plane uh, yet. But uh, you know, one day we can dream. We can dream. Now, the community, and, but, yeah. but the thing is to take community concerns if you hear them, or you should be out there, kind of as a applicant or business owner. You should have your feelers out looking for people who may not be, uh, who may not understand the nature of your business. You know, if they have a bone on about it then, and, and there's, and there's, like I said, there's no way to reason with them. Then you just have to write that, that, that conversation off with them, but you should be reaching out to everybody else and integrate into your community. Yep. Yep. A hundred percent. I mean, like that's one of the things uh, we were talking before the program and I mentioned, you know, uh, one of the, uh, uh, fake companies that I have to teach people how to make pitch decks was called local genetics. And so like I made a pitch deck to be like, and here's how you would go and present, uh, to an investor, like, here's our cash flows and this is what we need and we have to build this. Uh, and, and so the name of it's local genetics. Why? Because that's exceedingly, that's the only way you're really going to win this license is if you have, that type of connectivity in that community that you're in, even in these, especially in states like a, a New Jersey and probably soon in Oklahoma and, and New Mexico, if they try to limit, they, they don't have a limit on the number of licenses per se, but they're like bars. They don't need to let another one in if they don't want to. And so that, that community has to say you can get the license. Not necessarily anybody else is going to be standing in the way, but if they don't want you there, you're not going to be able to open that only makes sense. I mean, you don't really want to be in a community where you're not wanted anyway. Right. 
Yeah. Although, I mean, it's although, the old Bracho Marx, you know. Yeah. I never wanted to join a club that wanted me as a member. You know, <laughs> That's right. He was a comedian. Yeah. But, you know, this speaks to, to uh, those cities and towns that are choosing at this early yeah. stage in, in New Jersey, New York, to opt out. Right. And, and, and you know what, uh, especially the way I understood the rules in New York, New York, they can opt back in at a later date. They had to choose whether to opt out now. Uh, this was right. December. And, and so take that option if you're if you know if you're a responsible city council person or mayor or whomever yeah you're going to take that option because you're hearing from residents who are concerned let it play out a little bit and then you can change your your stance later and you're going to almost certainly you're going to want the tax dollars you're going to want to have regulated business because guess what it, it, whether whether you approve it or not you're going to have unregulated business there you may as well yes. have regulated business to to uh, hopefully blunt some of and that and then the the relation to the regulated to the unregulated business it's not like i'm going to go try to find some tax free beer you know i, I <laughs> right. i'm going to just go buy beer and so you can regulate this in a way to get the compliance you're looking for without turning it into um an economic hegemony or like an economic type of play where it's like, this is Russia. We have oligarchs. There's your license, your license, your license. That's it. Uh, and then, you know, it's nice once you have one of those licenses, kind of, but then you're like, are you really telling me that my company can't compete in a level playing field? Maybe. Right. Yeah. yeah, maybe. Uh, so, you know, I like your point about the beer because uh, it makes me think of uh, dandelion wine. And they used to make that back back east. You know, you get a, a a lawn area full of dandelions, and you can make wine out of it. Okay. No way. Dandelion wine. Never heard. I, of it. I, I never. Well, when I was a kid, so I didn't try it. Uh, yeah. But my, but uh, you know, would I try it? And that's the question. If I know I can go down the street and get a six pack that's been made under some form of regulation, mm -hmm. uh, the folks involved have product liability, right? If I have a problem, uh, so yeah. I think they the paid their product. Taxes. It yeah. was it was safe. I mean, I, I I'm not against regulation. It's, and then the regulations to a certain extent and the supply and demand of the market, they kind of take care of themselves. They and do. so if you're trying to try to open up another brewery in your community and your community, they give you the license. They're like, go for it. And you just suck at business or like it just doesn't connect or for any number of reasons. You know, uh, businesses fail. It's, it's it's evidently quite a lot of them. Uh, and, and not that long of order, like, you know, five years, quite a right. lot of them will fail. But uh, I just don't understand the uh, desire to limit the market other than some people just want a sure thing. Yeah, well, and, and so in Arizona, for example, we have a limited number of licenses. Uh, the way our medical marijuana law is written is that we can have as many dispensaries, well, 10% of, of dispensaries, 10% as many dispensaries, as pharmacies that was the way they wrote it because you know we were i say we uh the folks who wrote it though they were looking at it and they were saying well it's medical and and this is the way we're we're presenting it to decision makers and the uh, population the voters and so we're gonna uh, we're gonna structure it as a medical product and so that's worked pretty well and we have a sufficient number of dispensaries i think you know we've let recently some social equity licenses which is long overdue of course Yep. Uh, uh, but uh, that that's what that does, of course, is make the licenses exceedingly valuable because there is a limited number. So it's about 180 degrees opposite, say, Oklahoma. There's right. probably there's probably a happy middle ground. I mean, to your point, you know, the uh, the creative destruction of capitalism. Uh, some make it, some don't. 
So right. uh, you know, and it seems to work for restaurants, and those people right. feed us. They are literally making <laughs> right. us a food that can poison right. you, and yet, uh, but yet, you know, you seem to regulate them, and so this is a plant which, uh, provided that it's been grown well and like tests so that it's clean, it's not really going to cause uh, diphtheria or anything like that. It's not going to cause. Oh, I shouldn't have had those oysters last night at wherever. Right. right. You're right. not going to say that, you know. So I, I really hope that over the course of the next 10 years, the country kind of wakes up and sees that. And then the regulations, they're still going to be there. Let's not even kid ourselves. Absolutely. But uh, the market's more open. Absolutely. So, you know, thank you for touching on food for a moment, because if you're an edibles maker or for anything to do with cannabis, for that matter, it's being ingested. I'm going to loop back to insurance for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. it's, it's ingested by humans. And if I'm an underwriter, that that concept makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up, right? Risk. So, Risk. You mean people eat this? You know? Yeah. And so, like, people make mentioning Delta Eight. How do you go ahead and start writing a policy for a hemp derivative like Delta Eight or HHC or THCO or all the other new ones that they're going to be releasing as soon as the next farm bills out? Right. So, you know, my personal preference is just uh, free all the cannabinoids, right? Uh, as long as they're, well, they're naturally occurring. When you get into manufactured uh, subject, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, like HB210, which again, like I've, I've done videos about what the difference between the synthetic cannabinoid is, like the ones that they make at Hebrew University, like Dr. Michelin and stuff in a lab versus the, this hemp derision or like you know, they take the hemp, they extract it, and then they do some chemistry and they turn it into another cannabinoid. You know, that's different. Yeah, that's, that's hard for the... Uh, it's hard for lawmakers to wrap their minds around and they figure there's something bad going on there. And the other problem with that is, of course, you know, remember uh, what Kratom and, and some others that uh, every time they, the lawmakers would outlaw one compound, the chemists would just switch one element of it and create a new compound, which was not illegal. So right. that's what I'd say. Just uh, I would like to see uh, all cannabinoids legalized and, and call it good. Uh, you know, regulate them. Okay. But right. I hope we don't have to go through this torturous process for every, every new cannabinoid that comes out. Because that, that there's hundreds, available. there's hundreds of cannabinoids that are out there, and then conceivably yeah. there's probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of them. So, uh, yeah, that would that would just really create chaos in the regulatory landscape. But um, it, the hemp regulations, the cannabis laws, they just go to show the people that are making these laws really don't care about the plant too much, and also they don't understand it. Oh, absolutely. And so right. it's it's something like that where we need more people who have a, an enthusiastic relationship with the plant in office, so that the regulations can you know be at least honest. I mean, it's just right. it's not heroin, not even no, close. No, not, not at all. So actually, yeah. but, but you touched on an important point. Uh, until we get those folks in office, more of them, there are some. We need to be lobbying. Because that's the next step, right? Is going and engaging your lawmakers, your policymakers, at whatever level of government they're at, and have those conversations with them and educate them. I remember one of my one of my state representatives. Uh, I, I caught him at a, a breakfast meeting, and afterwards I, I took him aside and I asked him. We didn't have any relationship before, so uh, but I told him a little bit about medical marijuana, and he had some misconceptions and uh, some. Some wrong information, of course, some stigma. Some he and, and this particular fellow uh, comes from a more of a libertarian bent, so I figured I had a chance with him, right? 
Uh, and so uh, it wasn't a moral issue for him, I didn't think. And so I told him some things, and he was funny. He held up his phone, and he said, I'm, I'm going to go on the Internet and check these things out that you're saying. And I said, mm -hmm. please do. Right. And you know what? He's ended up becoming somewhat supportive. That's so good. he did educate himself. I mean, it just it takes a little prodding, you know, you, it, but we have an obligation. Uh, if we're truly passionate about this, we, we should take the opportunity. We have the opportunity and, and we should rise to and, and do this duty kind of and, and educate. And, and right. then those conversations will help train you maybe to and inspire you to run for office yourself. Yeah. And that's that's the way to go about it. I mean, and I think we're seeing some of that, like Gary Chambers out of Louisiana, that black guy that smoked the uh, blunt as his uh, as his dad. And it got it went really viral. And now he's using that to help raise money. Right, and so right. when you see uh, cannabis being an issue that you can raise money on, uh, you know, politicians, I think, will glom onto that because they're like money. I need that money. <laughs> I'm running for reelection in the fall, you know. Uh, and so indeed. But it's it's you, when you don't have a constituency because your constituency is a criminal, it's right. very difficult to get representation. Uh, and and that's that's one of the things. And so, like, I'll give like people will call me and they'll ask for money, and, you know, congressmen stuff. And I'll be like, oh, God, I wish I could. But yeah, this stupid state, you know, how many clients they have none. What? They're all in a lawsuit. They're all in a lot. If this was Oklahoma, I'd, I'd be able to pay you so much more money because I'd have a bazillion clients that need a whole bunch of stuff and I'd be helping them out. But no, you don't let me have that. So how is your district? You know, one of those deals. I'm just I'm, I'm terrible. I'm just terrible. <laughs> well, you're making them think, you know, that they're doing what yeah. they need to do to stay in business, so to speak. But yeah. So if I could uh, turn it back to insurance a little bit, because uh, a couple of things are important. One is auto and and a larger point that your audience should be aware of most won't but a few may be tempted to uh, even one percent may sound like a lot on their line item and their budget but do not do not engage a broker who's not knowledgeable about cannabis don't try to use the fellow or the gal who's writing your homeowners or your auto policy uh, they may think they can they may not know better uh, or worse they may not fully disclose the nature of your operations, in which case, carrier can walk rescission. away from the claim. That's right. That's yeah. a, rescission yeah. is the contractual thing where it's like, that's not the deal. Nope. Exactly. You know, and, and so they, they would say, we don't have a You have no claim because that's the policy doesn't cover that. Right. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's uh, the insurance country companies are one of the chief purchasers of legal products. I will have our audience know, by the way. Uh, and it is it is true. And so there when you when you go to law school and then get out of it, nobody has been taught how to be a business owner, uh, but they have been taught that they're special and they have egos. And so uh, very often they will join uh, insurance defense firms and they will be uh, in torts. And then they go and they represent the insurance company in court and they, they say, no, this isn't a claim that's not covered. Put grandma in a ditch. I'm sorry. We don't have to pay this claim. I, and I realize that's like glib and, and bombastic, but that's the point. Uh, and so uh, that was a, an interest. I never worked for him. I never had ever an insurance company as a client. Uh, but I, I saw how large they were in the in the legal space after I became a lawyer. And before that, and I think like the other, this is like, it's like 2% of the population's lawyers. Uh, and so like whomever is not a lawyer or in the insurance industry, they aren't going to understand that right. how much litigation goes on with insurance. Right. 
And the worst thing you want, you know, as a as a broker, the worst thing I ever can tell anybody is, you know, there's no coverage for you if you've had a loss. And so, but you know, we work to make that not happen because we're going to fully disclose the nature of operations. Uh, so it, it, it's vital. It's key. You just you can't you can't skimp on it. Uh, you know that way. You can't go to a carrier that doesn't know what they're insuring because most carriers will not knowingly insure anything to do with cannabis. That's the bottom line on that. So on an, a particular type of coverage, I just wanted to mention because uh, New Jersey has a, a distribution license, right? Uh, yeah. So uh, auto and, and anybody. So if you're a retailer and you're doing delivery, auto claims, if there's a fatality, the average payout is 1.6 million. Wow. So that's something to think about, right? I mean, it, it's a serious risk. There's a serious exposure with auto. Uh, and that, you know, that 1.6 for a fatality, that's not the worst thing that can happen. Of course, you know, what happens is if you cripple a high earner, a young high earner has got a lifetime of high earnings and, and then they, they're crippled such that they have to be, for example, uh, you know, in a care facility. I mean, that, that's just, and, and having just one car on the road brings that exposure to you. So think about it that way. I mean, we do it, you know, all day, every day. My wife says when I fly somewhere, she's like, oh, I feel like it's dangerous for you to fly. I said, honey, you're more at risk driving to work. And we don't, but we do it every day. It's, a, you know, without, without a thought. Yeah. The regulations on, uh, you want to see something that's amazing. Uh, look at the regulations in flight. And it's the, uh, Nicholas Taleb, wonderful guy. Really recommend him. Heck of an options trader. Uh, at least he was in the 80s. And so he wrote The Black Swan. And the other one was Skin in the Game. And he had another one called Anti-Fragile. And he would discuss about this example of the aviation uh, department that we have, the FAA, and then how safe uh, airlines have been. And there has not been like an airline fatality in our country, like a commercial jet airline fatality, not uh, assassins or whatnot, for years. Years. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Can you imagine like a state could say that? There wasn't a traffic death on our streets for this year. That would be obscene, just obscene. But like we, we've done that not just once, but like for years. And I think the last one wasn't necessarily... Um, uh, it was human error to a certain extent, but it wasn't necessarily related to uh, the plane having some problem. It was the plane landing and then like running over somebody. Uh, and that was like in, in uh, San Francisco, I think maybe like seven years ago now. But then it's just that and the, the and then they probably studied why that happened. And then they changed the policies to prevent it from happening again. This anti-fragile thing where you are doing a thing, you're trying to keep people safe in the air, for example. And then when something goes wrong, you do a study and you determine what the causes were, and then you update the regulations. What a concept, you know? Well, and I love it. But, but you know, the distinction, I think, is that everybody in the airline industry is a professional versus you and I getting behind the wheel of our car. And we've been, you know, what was the licensing standard for us? It's so low because we need yeah. mobility as a, as a right? As a, as a yeah. nation, as a population. So, so you know, I like to say we're very democratic. We'll let anybody anybody drive, uh, but <laughs> and that's uh, so. But with that, you know, there are controls. And, and going back to so the auto and events certainly uh, because that's so fraught right now. It's so tough. Uh, and in another case, I'll give you uh, is even work comp. If you have controls in place, you're lowering your risk, right? You're, you still have that exposure, but you're lowering your risk. And underwriting should take that into consideration, you know, and it, so there's certain minimum standards they have to have you meet. But for example, I just uh, wrote a 
uh, work comp policy. It was a renewal, and uh, their their costs had gone up. They'd added staff and their comp. Um, but I asked about they have a 24/7 manufacturing plant, and it's in an industrial area. I didn't think it was a bad area. I'd been there. Uh, but underwriting came back, and and they had one one carrier declined to write them because wow. uh, because they thought it was too dangerous for staff in that neighborhood, literally. Uh, so I went back to the to the insured. They told me in detail. We really drilled down. They gave me all of their safety and security measures, like their security on site walks employees out when they're leaving at, in the middle of the night, even though they're in a gated compound and it's a, not an easy compound to get into, but that's just the, what they do, right? And that's taking good care of their staff. And so we got them a substantial reduction in premium from the other carrier that had offered terms. But when we went back and said, here, you know, this is the additional that they're doing. So it helps. Um, yep. and, and so, uh, yeah. So the safety work. and security policies that I've drafted so far, I may have to start updating and put, we will walk you to your car. But yeah, well, I, I don't know about that. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I think, should, well, you know? it just depends on the neighborhood, right? So, yeah. so the whole thing is for your audience to know and for applicants to know, um, think about your loss controls. Think about, you know, how you're really reducing your risk and exposure for yourself, for the community, certainly your staff, because underwriting uh, would love to hear those things and, and it might help get you some additional credits uh, and it and it's just a, it's a good it's a good thought exercise always in any case mm-hmm. so that, awesome, that was man. thanks for letting me make that point that oh like, no no i think we had a we had a very deep dive into uh, cannabis insurance products for licensed cannabis businesses and you know i wanted to thank you so much for coming on the program uh, as we wrap up here before we talk about like where people can find you uh, I wanted to ask, like, what other types of things have you answered for your clients, like a bazillion million times, uh, in the sense that when in your business, when you're doing it, uh, what is something that you very often have to tell uh, your clients that there, there's a common misconception, any type of like parting wisdom? Because a lot of new entrepreneurs in the cannabis space watch the program. So, like, what type of uh, advice would you give them? Oh, thanks for the opportunity, Thomas. Uh, you know what? So <laughs> we can end with one of the first things they should be thinking about uh, because they're, what is one of the first things you do? You look for a, a, a property to locate your business. Mm-hmm. And so your negotiations with your landlord, they need to be frank. Obviously, to, you know, you have that on your questionnaire too. Are they aware of the kind of business that you are? Because you need to know that if I'm a lessor, I own the building and I'm going to lease to you, you're a cannabis operation. I've got to go back and, and, tell my carrier for my insurance, my general liability and property coverage, that I'm going to have a cannabis tenant. And not all those companies are okay with that. So your landlord may have to go out and find a new policy if he really wants to lease, he or she really wants to lease to you. So that's a potential stumbling block for them. The other thing I see sometimes are lessors who had one just the other day. Uh, they They wanted a $10 million excess policy over the general liability. I don't, I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't. I don't see any justification for it. So we review leases ideally before you sign a lease. Let us review it, and I will make notes and tell you. You know, here's something that'll cost you a few bucks. This one's not worth trying to negotiate out, but maybe this one is. Those sorts of things. Uh, as far as those lessors, you know, I, I tell clients have that conversation with your potential lessor. 
if they go to their agent and they say, ah, you know, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna have a policy anymore. They're gonna, uh, they're gonna shut it down on me if I let you in there. We're gonna cancel. Then I say, go back, have them go back to their broker and see if they can get another policy that will accommodate the cannabis use, the cannabis tenancy. And if not, I'll take a run at it for them. I can place it. Uh, but I'm not looking yeah. to poach any, those guys. I'm not looking to poach anybody's business. Uh, but cool. so anyway, in the leasing process, just know that there's a serious insurance component and there's help available to help you work on it, you know, negotiate some of the, those finer points. All right, awesome, man. Well, I appreciate that. That's some good advice to new entrepreneurs that are out there getting into the space. And so where can people find and get in touch with you? We're at uh, Nine Point Strategies. We're a California-based agency. Mm -hmm. I'm in Phoenix. We have an agent in New York. We have other agents around the country. And we're Nine Point Strategies. There you go. Nine Point Strategies.com. Thank you. Indeed. Yep. Awesome. So. Well, Doug, thank you so much. I, and then everybody else who stuck around. And I hope that you guys learned something and it was useful. And if you liked it, you know, don't forget to click the subscribes and the likes and tune back in. And consider becoming a member because then you'll be in the credits. So we'll see you uh, next week. Okay, wrapping this one up.